If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, Audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries Audible books in every genre imaginable business, classics, history, self development, just to name a few. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30 day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash replay and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Currently, I am listening to the classic One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, Black Fish, Blue Fish, Old Fish, New Fish. Okay, that's、This、genius. Go to audible.com slash replay. That's audible.com slash replay and get started today. But I'm really excited to bring two very interesting people, and I'll let them tell you、uh, their backgrounds of how they got where they are. But、um, please help me welcome Martin Searhouse from Nissan and Chris Brony Bird from Qualcomm. Take the middle. Yeah. Okay.、Um, so, I want to spend obviously most of the time talking about you know, where we're going in the future, but I think the stories of how each of you got where you are are also really interesting. So, maybe you can briefly just tell people you guys are doing some pretty interesting things before you were in your current role.、Uh, so, I don't know. Chris, do you want to? Sure. I've been at Qualcomm for three years,、um, but I'm based in Detroit, having worked for General Motors and Chrysler for 20 years. And、uh, my last work at GM was developing、uh, advanced autonomous electric connected vehicles. And we developed some vehicles for the Shanghai World Expo、uh, that were autonomous. We even demonstrated、um, two autonomous vehicles driving as a platoon with the ability to video conference between the two vehicles、uh, and each vehicle carrying two people in them. So small pods for urban mobility applications. And I co authored a book called Reinventing the Automobile, which was published、uh, recently,、um, 2010 actually. Uh, by MIT Press. But at Qualcomm, I'm working on advanced technologies、uh, around automotive. Great. Mark? So I, I came to Nissan about two and a half years ago when they opened the research center here, and I'm, <clears throat> I'm directing the, the research center.、Um, my background is more from the AI side. I've been in artificial intelligence and doing intelligent systems for the, gosh, the past 20 years. Uh, was more than a decade as a senior scientist at NASA Ames, working on、uh, multi agent systems.、Um, from there, I went to Xerox PARC,、uh, also working on multi agent systems in healthcare, created a startup, and、uh, now I do autonomous cars, still about、uh, multi agent systems in my, in my view, although the agents here are both cars, people、um, you know, working together to get home. So, I mean, we've talked already at the conference a little bit about the future we're going to, and we're going to talk about how we get there.、Um, but maybe you guys can do a quick reset of where are we actually? What, what is possible today in terms of autonomous? What is、um, possible but not being used? And what is, where do we still need things to be ironed out before we get to this bright, rosy future? Martin, you want to start? I want to start. Yeah, well, so where are we? I mean, I, I think where we are today is that、um, 
the ADAS systems, meaning that uh, um, you know the intelligent cruise control, the around view cameras and sensors to detect uh, other vehicles and uh, objects around you is 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 norm is the norm and and um, it's it's getting closer into the the cheaper vehicles the more uh, economic vehicles but on the high level I, I think almost every uh, manufacturer has that capability uh, for Nissan you know in the Infinity um, you know lane keeping um, you know braking autonomously is is done already but where it's going obviously is driving hands free and. You know the, the the technology there is is getting better, and and I I think probably everybody here knows about you know what Google is doing and you know where 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 we are. Um, the hard things are still what I would call socially acceptable driving. How, how do we how do we really understand how people behave inside traffic, and how do we manage that as an intelligent system <clears throat> to need, really understand. Um, what this, the environment is doing and how to react right and appropriately to that environment. And that includes communicating back to um, you know, pedestrians, other vehicles, uh, where people are driving, motorcycles, etc., and doing that uh, safely in an urban environment. I think that is still um, you know, the holy grail where we need to get to. And when you say communicating back, I mean, if it's pedestrian... <laughs> You know, they don't have time to look at their smartphone. I mean, you can imagine a vehicle-to-vehicle world. In milliseconds, one vehicle might eventually be able to tell another vehicle, you know, you need yeah. to take this action. Pedestrian, it's not going to work that way. How, how do they get alerted by an autonomous car? Well, I'll let Chris say something about that. But, you know, let me say one thing. It is a tough problem um, about... Uh, the communicating, and so there's two two problems. I mean, there's many many problems, but let me just mention two, and then I'll leave it to Chris. One is about um, communicating the, the the pedestrian communicating to the vehicle what it's going to do, right? And that is like, how do you predict what somebody is going to do? And the other part is the the vehicle communicating its intent to the pedestrian. You would be surprised how much communication we have in a vehicle. Uh, to other road users. Uh, I just have to say, you know, imagine going into a four-way stop sign and what you do as a driver. And I'll let Chris take yeah. it from there. Well, I think everybody realizes that there is no single magic bullet that's a sensor that can see in all weather conditions under all operating conditions and that there's a trend towards fusion of different types of sensors that each have different strengths and weaknesses like cameras and radars and lidars and so forth and I view connectivity as another type of sensor that has different strengths and weaknesses and you could easily I think imagine a situation where a pedestrian is walking inside a building and it's not transmitting because they're not at any risk of being hit by a car but they're outside, they're about to cross the street, and maybe they're transmitting. So the car receives that information along with all of the other sensory information that the car sees, and it can make a more informed decision. It can make a faster decision. Because this connectivity could be, even if a person is coming out from behind a blocked car and is not visible by the traditional sensors on the car, the vehicle's getting a heads-up alert that there may be a pedestrian about to enter the field of view of the sensors, so that when the sensors actually do see the pedestrian for the first time, they can make a faster decision with more accuracy. So I think connectivity can really help improve the overall uh, robustness of the sensing system on the car. And there may well be a situation in the future where vehicles are communicating directly with each other. And if that's the case, you know, we're quite interested in the idea of putting 
the connectivity in a smartphone, since nearly everybody is walking around with a smartphone. And if you're a pedestrian or a cyclist, it could perhaps improve your, your safety or your feeling of safety in these urban environments. So you really might get an alert on your smartphone. Well, it really might be look up. That's, a cha- that's more of a challenge because then you might distract somebody right. in the process of walking and then it might create a, a situation. But just if the, tra- if the smartphone can transmit to the car, then the car's ADAS system, mm-hmm. which balances all the inputs. Sorry, ADAS. Oh, sorry, yeah, advanced target. driver assistance system. All the sensors on the car that can decide uh, or make the decision. Stuff. Yeah, it's another input. So, so uh, if I might interject, I mean, the, the, there are some fundamental problems that we still have to figure out, and and I think vehicle to vehicle and vehicle to infrastructure uh, are part of these problems. And and I, I always like to make it a very simple example. It's like you know, I, I like four way stop intersections. By the way, I mean they're very uh, complex in its nature once you start studying them. Um, but if I have, you know, a four-way stop intersection, two lanes every way, 20 cars coming down to that intersection, a couple of pedestrians, a couple of bicyclists, um, and they all have vehicle-to-vehicle or DSRC radio, and they're all sending... It's like everybody's sending me a Twitter, and you've got to figure out who is where with sending you what tweet, right? I mean, um, it's still a very difficult problem to figure out what to do with that information from a decision-making point of view. Um, and, and if, you know, we, we have anthropologists in my uh, organization, we're stutter, studying how people deal with intersections. And, and I think Google had a, a, reason, uh, a reason funny uh, example where they were in, um, um, in Austin, Texas, I believe, where, uh, what is it, a fixie, uh, you know, a, a person on a, a bike that was going forward, going backward, and the car was stopping, going, stopping, going. So, so, yeah, sure, it sees the person, right, but right. it's not sure what the person is going to do. And so that is what the predictive, you know, how do you predict what, what a human is going to do? And that is a hard thing, and that is where the multi-agent part of the planning, of the AI planning comes in. It's not just planning what I am going to do, what direction the car is going to take. It's also taking into consideration everybody else. So one of the big questions um, kind of in this world is, you know, how do we get to autonomous driving? Is it um, somebody like Google starting from scratch, building a car that was only ever designed to be self-driving? Is it sort of the incremental smart features, you know, from what you were talking of, it stays in its lane to eventually I take my hands off the road, that incremental approach? Where do you guys see that shaking out? Are you working on both at Nissan? Uh, do, you, do you see one winning out? And then, Chris, I'd love your thoughts, too. So, uh, yeah, at Nissan, we're taking both approaches. Um, I, I think, you know, it's clear. So the automobile industry is, you know, I'm new to it, so I, I don't quite understand it yet, but it's kind of like NASA. It's a big engineering <laughs> organization, and, and it goes very slow, right? I mean, the the you know, from idea to production is a long life cycle. Um, and so it is very, I think, normal that uh, the OEMs, you know, apart from the whole social acceptance issue, that they take a stepwise approach. You know, safety is, of course, uh, uh, very important. On the other end, you see markets starting to change around mobility, you know, the Uber, the Lyft, the, you know, the robo-taxi, right? Um, economics will win. And so the the drive from that end might change the landscape of where where autonomy will come in first and how we handle that. And so we're looking at both sides. 
Chris, how do you see that? Yeah, I, I agree with Martin. I think there's a market need for both. I mean, cars are still an aspirational purchase for a lot of people, an emotional attachment to them. They want to own the car. That's still the truth to, to a large extent. And having a vehicle that can drive autonomously or semi-autonomously for certain stretches of that commute, for example, could be very um, convenient for a lot of people. But I think there's also uh, a challenge with that, which is the, the human-machine interface or the, the interaction between the car and the vehicle, because both are somewhat in charge, but not completely. And I think when, in some respects, what Google is trying to do or what the robo-taxi is trying to do could be easier, because there's no confusion over who's in charge, and it's operating in, in a very much more restricted environment at lower speed, where the sensors can uh, be more reliable, and they can take more readings before making a decision, and where you can map the area more easily, because it's a fixed location as opposed to the whole country. Uh, so I think there's... there's Challenges with both approaches. Obviously, the urban environment is the most challenging in terms of the complexity of pedestrians and cyclists and, and so forth. But on the other hand, it has some easier challenges to overcome than what traditional automakers are doing. So I think both will coexist. And if, if you have to think of the end result being a fully autonomous vehicle that's capable of going 300 miles at 100 miles per hour like a traditional car... These are two different ways of getting there. The traditional car companies are going through a, an evolutionary approach, adding autonomous features to a fully functional vehicle, whereas Google, if they can master the urban environment with a fully autonomous pod, they could perhaps take that solution and apply it to a traditional car that goes 300 miles and, and goes 100 miles an hour and get to the same end point. And you've obviously you've spent time in Silicon Valley. You've spent time in... in Detroit, you're still in Detroit, but you, you spent time with tech companies, you've spent time with things. How do you see that? I mean, they're both trying to get to a place. Neither has been to the place they're trying to get. They both bring a set of skills. Um, you know, conventional wisdom, I would think, in this crowd is, you know, tech wins out over everything. Um, how do you see it? You've been at the big car companies. Yeah, I think the, the, the car companies, a lot of them have operations here in Silicon Valley, and a lot of the technology companies that we're talking about are like sensor companies, and processing companies, which um, aren't necessarily located in Silicon Valley, but some of them are. And I, I think that they're trying to solve two different problems. The car companies are, by and large, going after the, the evolutionary approach, um, whereas the, the more disruptive approach is in urban mobility. So they've got different challenges that they're working on. And I, I think both approaches will work out in the next five to ten years. So you see a split in the vehicles, you know? Over time, or? Well, I think over time, more and more people will, will uh, accept the premise of a shared vehicle. I think you're seeing that with the millennials, and certainly the idea of an autonomous vehicle that comes to you is the holy, holy grail. It's door-to-door -door mobility for everybody, irrespective of age, income, and ability, which I think is the perfect transportation system. We don't have it today because a lot of people can't afford a car, and it doesn't really take you door-to-door because -door you still have to park somewhere and walk back to where you really need to go. And public transport doesn't take you door-to-door -door either. You still have to walk to the bus station or go down the subway steps and whatever. So I think the idea of a, of a driverless Uber or robo-taxi, I think, is the ultimate perfect solution for, for a large number of people. There will be some people who like to own a car because it's a, an emotional thing and they want to have guaranteed access all the time. But I think more and more people are comfortable with the shared economy aspects. So, Martin, Chris brings up the other vector, and Yonatan talked about, you know, it's not just the move to autonomy. It's also the changes in ownership models and ride-sharing. How much is that influencing how Nissan is thinking about the future? I mean, I sort of wonder who's going to come out with the first car built 
for an Uber. Because if you're designing a car to be shared, it probably looks different than a car that's designed to be owned. Yeah, so <clears throat> the first one who's going to build the car for an Uber is, is Uber. Um, <laughs> you know, so, uh, <clears throat> so, so yes, I mean, every car company is thinking about what, what the future will be in terms of sh- car sharing, and, and, and that's where <clears throat> definitely it's... Autonomy sp- plays a role in that, but it's also, you know, um, it, it's who is the customer and where do you try to sell this kind of, um, you know, service. Because now, and, and so the companies need to start changing their business model to a service model. And, you know, and some of them are better at that than others. And, and yeah. you know, how that will play out, um, you know, I, I, I really don't know, right? But, but Nissan is looking in urban areas at car sharing and, you know, um, you know and we, tr- we will try that here in San Francisco. We were doing that in Yokohama, in Japan. Um, and so... And is that with new types of vehicles or just existing vehicles? No, that, I mean, that's with existing vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and <clears throat> you know, the, actually it's, it's not only Nissan, it's Renault and mm-hmm. Nissan, right? So, so we have different vehicles that we try to do this. The autonomy part will come in when that is, you know, when it works. Um, in the end, you know, what is really the question is who will build the cars and, and what will happen with the industry in terms of, you know, are we just building a platform and another service company will, will put the autonomy on it? I mean, that is, you know, no. sort of, you know, I think there's, and I know neither of you guys spend most of your time on the connected car side, but just to bring it in as a vector, I mean, you have Apple and Google not leave their car aspirations aside for just a second, but even just on the entertainment side, more and more the value is going to that. More and more the work is still on you guys. You know, uh, I was talking with Ford's CEO earlier this year, and he's like, look, we don't want to become the handset industry. And obviously, it's a terrible business model for a company that has as much R&D expense and safety as you guys do. I mean, it when I look at the different scenarios, it seems pretty tough for for the auto industry. Uh, there seem to be a lot of different forces pushing at you guys, and not a lot of wins at your back. Am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you're asking the wrong guy. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm there for three years. I, mean, I I don't know. I mean, it's pretty hard to develop. You know, it's it's okay to develop a hundred cars. It's okay to you know to put a thousand cars maybe on the road. It's really hard to put in a hundred thousand. It's really hard to get a car off the line at you know at this moment every sixty seconds in a different model and do that in a way that is cost effective. And so, you know, I don't necessarily see a Google and an Uber, you know, developing their cars. I mean, you know, it will be a different business for them, and it's probably not a, you know a business that is profitable. So, so somebody needs to develop those cars. And and so the question is. You know, is is the industry just going to provide the platform, or are they able to provide more than that? And that depends on how much um, you know we can own what goes on in the car, you know, and and how much we can put the technology in that people want to use. And if that's not the case, then the drive will be in another way. I mean, whatever. And I I don't know the answer. The one answer I I do know is that. The car companies, all of them, are working very hard to not have that happen. You know, but, but I think the traditional <clears throat> car companies have a, uh, an incentive to use existing vehicle platforms 
for shared vehicle service because then they don't have to invest in a completely new vehicle. But I think to get the true value out of a shared vehicle, you, you would want to optimize it. I mean, the vehicle is operating in a fixed environment. It doesn't have to go all the way from Alaska to, you know, tropical Arizona, or, I mean, hot, heat, <laughs> hot Arizona, yeah. I should say. It doesn't have to be designed to meet such a wide terrain or climate, um, for example. It doesn't necessarily have to be designed to go have a really fast acceleration because that may not be so critical in these lower speed environments. It can be designed to op- uh, last two or three years instead of 10 years. So you can have hardware uh, refreshes much faster and you can, you can guarantee or, or more likely guarantee over the air updates because you, you're going to be operating in a fixed area with a, an operator. Uh, so there are diff- many differences between and maybe 3D printing. Local manufacture becomes more attractive, especially if it's part of an urban mobility play where you want to incentivize governments to promote this solution and create jobs. So there's a lot of differences, uh, different factors that come into play if you're thinking about an optimized shared vehicle versus just a a regular production vehicle. And again, Chris, because you've been on both sides of this, what do you think um, Detroit, and not not the region but the car makers, what do you think the car makers still don't get about the tech industry and what does the tech industry not appreciate about the car industry? Well, I think there's a, the car is, is a tremendously um, impressive device if you think about its ability to start up immediately on a, on a really cold morning in Minnesota or Alaska. And that's something that we take for granted when we we have a car, and the fact that it can operate for such a long period of time and not become obsoleted, provided you look after it. There are certain things that are very impressive, given how, um, how di- abused the vehicle is by ordinary people. And I think a lot of people in the tech industry may not have appreciated that when they, were, when they weren't so involved in the auto. They just saw a very slow-moving, very conservative industry. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a much more challenging device with a lot more repercussions than a, a cell phone. Um, so I think there's, there's a greater awareness from the tech industry of, of the challenges in making a car, that it's not as easy as it looks, and there are some good reasons why it's designed the way it is. On the other hand, I think the, the, the car companies can learn tremendously from the IT companies in the areas of compute, computing, processing. I think you're going to see that shift more and more, where the, the brains behind the cars in the future are going to be driven by tech companies more and more. Which brings up two kind of issues. One is about the speed, um, and can it's the agility, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you say what is the difference, it's you know, agile. I mean, the car companies do not know how to be agile, right? It's just it's, and you know, and I was at NASA, and you know, I saw the space shuttle, you know, disappear, and it's like you know, you have three or four space shuttles, and then now you have commercial spacecraft that you know, and so I, it is. It is going to happen, right? I mean, they will have to change. And the, the question I have is, how long will it take for them to need to change? If, it's, if, if, we all, if you guys all tomorrow will buy autonomous vehicles so that we can get rid of all traffic lights and we just do everything and you can build a car that's lighter, you know, you don't need to have all the safety, you don't, you know, then the car companies will have a, tr- a big trouble of, of keeping up because if you, do, if you can 3D print a car you know, you know, all bets are off. But how long is that going to take before we can do that? Because we're not going to change the world tomorrow. Getting rid of three space shuttles was easy. You know, they're in museums now. Getting rid of all the cars in the world that exist today and going to be there for another 18 years at least, it's, it's a difficult thing. So how that, you know, throwing my cell phone in the, gar- in, in the garbage and buying a new one is pretty easy. Doing that with a car, mm, so that, that is what I think is, is really the question. And I, I don't have that answer 
but it's going to happen, and, and they better change, otherwise, it, you know. So I'm going to ask a few timing questions. Which happens first, and this is clearly geared towards you, which happens first, autonomous, uh, fully autonomous vehicles on the road or a man on Mars? Oh. <laughs> with, the, with the current government? <laughs> fully autonomous vehicles. <laughs> okay, that was an easy one. Harder one. I have a, a two-and-a-half-year-old son. Is he going to ever need to learn how to By the way, that's car? why I went to the car industry. Because I <laughs> You're the only person <laughs> you know, who can say the car industry you know, is fast. It's like, you know, I never get to Mars in my lifetime. Sorry. But. So I have a two-and-a-half-year-old son. Is he ever going to need to know how to drive a car? No. That, I mean, as a parent, that, that's no, exciting I, and great news. Yeah. I, think it, yeah. I think it'll be uh, always useful to know how to drive a car. Just like... Uh, well, that, that's a different... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I would still encourage it. Yeah. Um, we haven't really talked... Learn how to ride a bike. That's interesting. <laughs> we haven't really talked about security, and I'm, I'm curious from a couple of angles. It strikes me that even before we get to very smart cars, we don't have very connected cars today. We don't have very you know, community of cars, and still we're hearing about the, these very primitive systems that were designed to be completely firewalled where the communication never touched the car, being yeah. hacked in different ways. The, the future is a vehicle that has to communicate. The communication has to talk to the vehicle. I'm, how concerned are either of you that these few security things now will make an already slow industry even more cautious, move even slower? Yeah, I mean, security, you know, gosh, we, we only have a minute left, I see. I mean, so a car is a cyber-physical system, Yeah. right? I mean, it is, and, and then an autonomous car is an autonomous cyber-physical system. And, you know, th there are very few systems in the world that exist today in, of that complexity that are safe and secure, and you can, I mean, it, so it, any, every security problem that you ever have thought of, you know, we will have in a car. I mean, I am, and so this is very difficult to deal with. And do you think we'll have some setbacks along the way of oh. people moving slower, taking you know, and, and this might actually, you know, uh, slow the process down. Uh, it's probably the one thing that could derail the connected vehicle path progress. I mean, I, I, I don't want to scare anybody, but, you know, I'm still trying to get a critical mass to go to Google with, with mirrors on a morning. Just take a mirror and go on the street and see what, the, what, that, does. The, what that does to the autonomous vehicle. I mean, I still don't have a good answer to that, but, you know, just... <laughs> and don't tell them I told you to do that. <laughs> we'll just keep it between ourselves. Um, so I could talk to these guys all day, but I, I want to open it up. If folks have questions, um, you know, again, I think the, the, the amount of change here is going to be pretty incredible. Tim. Um, Tim Beher and Creative Strategies. I have an interesting question that is, I guess, kind of in the ethical context, is that I'm driving, I'm at a, the, the car is about to go through a, Intersection, and there's a as a bus of school children, uh, a, a woman walking her uh, child in a you know in a stroller, and a kid riding his bike, and the brakes fail. How does the car figure out <laughs> that type of a situation? I mean, I get the impression that that there are some things that you know we, we're we're in a technical frame. But there's this kind of an ethical thing that might pop up because we don't know every situation. 
So I think there's two questions. I think there's Tim's direct question about what decision does the car make, and then there's a question of how much do we get slowed because we have to figure out for these end cases like what Tim's talking about. I'll let Chris handle yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a very good question, yeah. And I think a lot of people are still wrestling with how to answer that. Um, obviously, you're going to have to need a higher level of redundancy than you have today. So in the example you made about the brakes fa failing, that's probably um, a scenario that would need to be vetted against. Um, it doesn't happen very often, but it, it can happen, I agree. So you, you need redundancy in the actuators as well as in the sensors and the processing. But that just begs the question, something bad will happen. We all know that. And I don't think I, I have an answer in terms of how we decide what the right course of so, action should be. Yeah, so my, my question back to you is, like, what, what ethical problem are you uh, trying to address? Like, who to pick or, or just what? An issue, right? Does it? Would it? No, I mean, we fact that there we could decide who to pick. <laughs> I mean, that's not an issue. The question is, what what is the ethical? That, what is the ethical? This, I mean, so is it a liability question, or is it like, are we are we as human race accepting a robot making a decision that you think is is a problem? Yeah, but we are programming it. Right. I mean, I, I think it's all of the above, but I, I do think this discussion, I hear this come up all the time, and it ignores the fact, or it, you know, it strikes me that we get hung up over this, and thousands of people are dying every day. Yeah, right now. Agreed. Like, so so that, that's no where I was going. Cars so are safer. Is it ethical for us to not have safer cars oh, that I'm, kill? I'm, I'm so, so that's where the ethics to me lays. I'm, it's I'm like. I'm fully behind the idea. Yeah. I just wonder. In thinking this through, those type of things are something we have yeah. to it, factor. It, and I think experience will help as well, because this probably will happen, because bad things will happen at some point. And then how we react to that, what happened, will shape the algorithms going forward, I would imagine. And the, the responses might be different in different countries. Different countries may view what happened as differently, because they have different um, ways of looking at things. I mean, so... To answer your question is like, do we think about that and how you know? And yes, I mean, I you know, I have had uh, you know professors professors in ethics come to my office and we talk about that because the roboticists. I mean, it's not only in autonomous vehicles, right? We have it with drones. We have it with any. I mean, I'm actually way more afraid of a million you know, drones flying through San Francisco and taking off hands and arms and, you know, crashing into, you know, then, you know, in, in, a, in a shorter period of time then. And so, the, so yes, for roboticists and for any engineer, there is an ethical question about if you create an autonomous system, about how you deal with, um, you know, the, 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 the tough questions, the tough ethical questions. And, but as a, as a, you know, to go forward, you have to, I, I agree with Chris. I mean, you have to deal with that as it comes, and um, hopefully, those situations are very few, and the and the, the benefits are, are way more, outweigh those. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Hey guys, um, really great panel. Enjoyed having a perspective outside of Silicon Valley here. So thank you for that. Uh, my question goes to Ina's question about having a kid and sort of trying to teach them whether to drive or not. I have a six and a half year old, and so it resonates. Uh, and I wonder if you think that if you fast forward 25 years from now, maybe the car industry has a 
more rosy f- uh, future where there are two use cases. There's a use case for commuting, going to work or taking my kid to school, and that's a very mundane, boring use case. I don't want to be stuck in traffic. I don't want to drive. That's a use case that the autonomous vehicle solves for. But then there's the old California dream, which is you drive on Highway 101 or Highway 1, and you go to Santa Barbara from San Francisco. It's a beautiful ride. I want to drive the car. I don't want the robot to have all the fun. Do you see a future like that where the industry bifurcates into these robotic autonomous vehicles that are sold for $3,000 a pop, and then there is the $10,000 or $20,000 vehicle that I use to have fun? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been driving you know, my Infiniti Q50 for the last three years now, almost. And I, I have to say, when I get in, so I also have a GTR, right? And I got a big ticket on Route 1. <laughs> you know, not a good idea. I mean, but, but so the, when I drive, I mean, the GTR, great car, you know, 0 to 60 in, what, 2.4 seconds. You know, it's wonderful. But when I'm in that car, I think, like, I have to brake. That's a stupid activity. Why does my brain, why do I need cycles in my brain where I could think about some complex topic that I'm you know, dealing with? Why do I have to, to stop thinking about that to think about breaking? That is really a low-level action or activity that I don't want to be dealing with, and I miss it. And so I think that as we get used to driving autonomously, you know, so it doesn't have to be all the time. And this is kind of what we're doing at Nissan, um, you know, it's kind of like between completely self-driving, uh, uh, p- the person driving versus completely autonomous, there is this incredible, you know, space. And I want to go seamlessly between that space. And I remember when I was at NASA, you know, sliding autonomy was this big, this big word, right? Okay, how can we slide the autonomy from less autonomous to more autonomous? And I, you know, fought against that for a long time, but now I think it actually makes sense. You know, I, wanna, I want the car to completely let me control the car when it wants, and then when it knows that I'm not controlling, it just takes over and it's all seamless. So there is not this dichotomy between driving or not driving. It is like whatever I want, and that's what I think will, will drive the... I, I, know, I don't know if I answered your question, but... That, I think we don't have to look at if, if nearly all of your driving is the commute and it's just you know, once a month that you want to really enjoy driving, you might decide, I don't need to own a vehicle for that purpose. It'll be a shared vehicle. But I think the other question will be, in 25 years' time, if nearly all the vehicles are autonomous, will it be allowed to drive manually? And secondly, will you have the skills? If, you, if you're not driving man, uh, manually regularly, you may lose the skill to drive properly. So you may need to have uh, constant or frequent interventions just to assess so the car can assess your driving ability well yeah i want to say one more thing about the, the car sharing so i mean i don't know about maybe i'm old i am old sorry <laughs> i shouldn't say maybe but you know but um i don't really like i drive a lot from san francisco to sunnyvale to you know to here car sharing for me you know it's like I want to be in a car where I know where my stuff is, what is in the car, where I plug in, what the radio station is set at, you know, my seat, blah, blah, blah. So my car is my personal space, and it's like being in an elevator, right? I mean, it's like it's, a, it's not a big space, and we don't like to be close to each other in small spaces. And a car is an example, you know. So taking an, 
an Uber X or a Lyft where with multiple people, it's kind of a, you know, only certain people like to do that. And so... Um, <laughs> So Carmel's thing, written all about it. Yeah, so, so, so the, the thing to me is that um, there is space for both types of vehicles. And until we have sh- car sharing where I go in my car and, it's this, and, and the, the piece of paper that I threw in last week in the car is still there, and that's the car, you know, until that happens, I can maybe do car sharing. And when I need it and it's there on the moment. But otherwise, I still need my own vehicle that I can control when I use and where I go. Just maybe because I'm a selfish, you know, <laughs> SOB, and I want to just control where I go myself. But so that's kind of my. So there's room for both, and if that's the case, there will be more cars, not less. So that's another, you know. So I say, you know, Uber and Lyft, autonomous. It's a whole new market that is untapped for the auto industry. That might actually be more cars in the short term. But that's right. just it. We're going to give you the last word. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot.